Your Family, Your Money is brought to you by Westpac Bump Savings Account. Welcome to a Kindling podcast, Your Family, Your Money. I'm Georgina Dent. And I'm Caitlin Fitzsimmons. We're two mums with young families and we want to help all families understand money better. It is so closely linked with with all of the things that we do, whether that is, you know, where we live, how we live, how we look after our children, where they go to school, how we spend our holidays. It's, It's so closely linked with all of those decisions. And I think that empowering people to to be comfortable talking about money is so important. It's true. It's one of those big taboos. People hate talking about it, but especially for couples, it's like you you really have to get on the same page about it. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And I think that the way families manage their money is incredibly important to their to their security and to their their happiness. In this episode, we're going to talk about how to transition back to work and how to make some money on the side. So, Georgie, why don't you tell us about your transition back to work? Because you've had three children. I've got two, but that was only one pregnancy. So, yes, you were more efficient in, in that regard. That's right. <laughs> uh, I had three different transitions back to work. The, the first time I effectively went back to my old job, um, but I worked four days a week. The most difficult component in reality for me going back to work the first time was us finding childcare. Um, I was quite naive, I suppose, and just imagined that if you had a child that needed childcare, you could find a position in a local area and that would not be a problem. Uh, It wasn't quite so simple and it actually took a a month of what I would call a full-scale attack from me and my husband calling, emailing, getting in touch with with every childcare provider we could find. I was very tempted to make cakes and deliver them to different directors at different points. We were eventually offered a position for our daughter and it was actually in the city and neither my husband or I worked in the city, but that was the only place we could get. So we had a little CBD baby um, and we took her in on the bus every day and then we would make our own way to work. Um, And I think I have mentioned this previously, but that childcare was very expensive. I think it was about $160 a day. And this was six years ago. And so we were shocked to probably, to say the least, at our out-of-pocket expenses with that transition back to work. And the thing that I say to so many people is that at that point, it seemed ludicrous that we would spend that much money on childcare. Uh, And at the time, when you looked at it, the numbers didn't really add up. I mean, we were only just getting by. Our childcare expenses were the biggest household expense. We were paying more for her childcare than we were in rent. Um, And that's not because we were paying incredibly cheap rent in a capital city. But doing that paved the way for my career and my husband's career to keep, keep developing. And there have been benefits in that regard. When I went on maternity leave with our second daughter, I was actually offered a different job to go back to. And I was very fortunate that when I was approached with a new job, my boss said to me, you have got two small children. How do you think you could make the job work? And we'll do it that way. And so we made the job work and I went back to work um, three days a week. And I did short days in the office because I was still breastfeeding. Our, Our second baby was seven months when I went back and I fed her until she was 12 months Um, And I was able to do that because I was working in a pretty flexible manner. And we actually used a combination of childcare and a nanny um, at that point. Again, for a period of time, the nanny was really expensive, but it enabled the whole picture to work. 
it meant that I could guarantee that that at least two of those three days, I could definitely, no matter what, be in the office. And that was only for a short period of time because then when she was just over one, she had a position three days a week. And then when, with our third baby, when I went back to work, I actually have gone back to work freelance effectively. And we have saved quite a lot of money in that regard because we haven't put her into childcare yet. We have used babysitters to to cover the time that I'm working Um, And in every instance, we have had to make different decisions and looked at the numbers. But the one thing I would say is that I actually am very relieved that we made the investment that we did in childcare, because even though it was a huge amount of money at the time, it actually paved the way for being in a position where, um, you know, my income is a huge, you know, our household depends on it. It's not just a nice thing to have. It's absolutely critical. And if I had given up work then financially we would be in a much more difficult position. Well, for me, I was freelancing before I had the children, actually. I'd I'd been freelancing for seven years. We were living overseas when I became pregnant. I came back to Australia when I was seven months pregnant. Uh, And I think when the children were about 12 months old, I started freelancing one day a week um, where actually my husband was looking after the kids. I would go to the local library. I'd come home early in the proceedings. I was still feeding them, but, you know, that, that kind of shifted over time. And it wasn't till they were 18, 19 months old that I went and took a job. Uh, it was actually four and a half days a week. So I would call that full time. It was four days in the office and then a half day at home. And I was lucky enough that um, at that time, my employer, Fairfax, uh, subsidised a childcare centre and we got preferential placement um, at that childcare centre. So I got them in there. But then that all kind of uh, got turned upside down about a year later when the premises were being sold and uh, the childcare centre was closing and I had to find somewhere new. And I had to kind of call around to every centre when they were two years old and I was already in a job saying, where am I going to put them? How can, you know, and I I don't know what you found. I had to like pay a lot of kind of $20 admin fees to go on waiting lists. Mm. And they, you know, I probably spent over a hundred dollars on these fees just to kind of be put on waiting lists. And that's before you factor in your time. Because that's the other thing that I find incredible is that you actually have to spend a lot of time filling out these forms, calling around, trying to strike up a relationship with someone, trying to paint your kids as particularly delightful that the centre would be grateful to have them (laughs) in their presence. Well, I'm still getting, well, not anymore, but, you know, for a few years afterwards, I was still getting phone calls. And when they had actually even started school saying, oh, your name's at the top of the list now. And I'm like, oh, well, thanks for that. <laughs> but I did eventually find somewhere, um, but it wasn't long daycare. It was it was preschool. It was, uh, you know, nine o'clock till four o'clock. Mm. Or maybe it was 8.30 to four, but it was, you know, it was not long daycare hours. Uh, so we kind of had to make that juggle work as a family. So what I would say to people who are looking at, you know, one parent going back to work at whatever age that happens is not to be thinking about childcare as coming out of the mother's income or the second income earner's income, but it should really be a household expense. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. And that is, it's funny actually how often uh, you hear or you read articles that say, you know, 
the mum only has $3.50 left in her bank account after paying childcare fees or people saying, oh, we can't really afford it because it would take all of my salary. And and I absolutely promote the idea of looking at it as a household expense. You don't sort of say, I only earn $3 after the mortgage um, or I only earn this amount after we've paid our groceries because they're just household expenses. And I think um, absolutely childcare should be viewed in that way. Yeah. And you have to think of it as an investment in your future career. And it's an investment in your insurance that you will be able to earn a living if things change in the future. You know, circumstances can change. And I think it's really important that you always have the ability to earn an income. So even if you're only going back uh, part time to kind of, you know, keep your skills current, I think that's a really good thing to do. But there are other ways to make more money for the household as well, both for stay-at-home mothers who can kind of start some sort of side project or for people who are working but, you know, kind of have some extra time to to put into some money-generating activities. I definitely don't think it is a coincidence that so many new mums in particular, when they're home, are starting new businesses and are trying new things because... I think that for a lot of people, when they go back to work, particularly after having two babies, it can become very expensive and logistically quite um, an undertaking to sort of get everyone out the door and, 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 and get the jobs done. And I think that's why we are seeing a growing number of Australian women setting up businesses. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Look, I'm not a fan of the term mumpreneur. I don't know what you think of it. No, I don't either. Well, you just don't ever hear of a dadpreneur. Exactly. Even an entrepreneur that has kids, he's just an entrepreneur. Exactly. But uh, it is definitely a trend for women to start businesses when they've got young children at home because of the flexibility that they can gain by being their own boss. I think sometimes there are might be underestimating the amount of work that's involved in a small business. I've spoken to many female entrepreneurs who kind of went in with that mindset and then it's like, oh my God, if you're looking for work-life balance, starting your own business is not the way to do it. But, you know, it doesn't mean they have regrets later. No, but I also think there are some incredible success stories out there. I mean, I I wrote something about um, the dinner ladies earlier this year for the newspaper, and they were two women who were at home with one of them had three kids, one of them had four kids, and and they were both particularly good cooks. And it sort of started as a a little way to make a little bit of money on the side. One of them wanted to buy her husband a present, so she said to her friends, I'll cook some nice dinners and deliver them to you. Would you pay me? And these two ended up, you know, setting up a business in the shed effectively. They got a camping stove and now it's a multi-million dollar business. And it really did start because these two women thought they've got this skill and potentially could meet a need. And I think there are a lot of, I mean, not every woman who starts a business, it doesn't always succeed, but there are some incredible stories. And often they start with the idea of someone thinking, how can I make just a little bit of money on the side? Well, Janine Alice started uh, Boost Juice in order to have the flexibility of, of bringing up her family. And yeah, sure, she's the first to say it didn't give her flexibility in the in the early years that she had to work really, really hard. But, you know, she's got this incredible business and incredible life now. So I, I also I think one of the things when you do talk to people who have started their own business, there is no doubt that it is not an all-encompassing pursuit. 
you know, it is time intensive. But what a lot of them say is that they are actually in charge of their time. So they've got some autonomy um, that they can, even if they are working really long days, if there's something that their child has on at school on a Monday morning or a Thursday afternoon, they can be there without having to run that by anyone. And I think that that is actually a really attractive proposition for a lot of people who have got interests outside their work is having the autonomy to make decisions about how they spend their time. And some employers will give you that autonomy, but uh, absolutely, I think you have to be. It's a it's a privileged position to be in. It's not it's not every employer that will do it, and they not every employer will do it for all employees either. So it's it's a rare company that just offers that flexibility by default. They are out there, but you know, you count your blessings when you find a job like that, I think. Look, one of the things that catches my eye um, that I've read about before and I wanted to talk with you now is that there are some estimates that the average household is sitting on about $5,000 worth of unwanted stuff at any point in time. Is that true? And if it is, how can we access that? Well, that's from the Secondhand Economy Report, which is uh, research commissioned by uh, Gumtree. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Yes, I think that is true. Like I, I think, you know, I look around my house and there's a lot of things that we no longer use or no longer need uh, that would potentially have resale value. And I think that if you, if you, you know, invest some time and effort into selling things online, you can recoup a lot of money. I mean, I recently sold um, a steam oven that was, you know, it was an oven and steamer and microwave combined in one. And we were using it as our, we'd used it for other things in the past when the children were little, um, we were steaming lots of vegetables and mashing them up and so on. But it had gotten to the point where we're only using it as a microwave, except it was about twice as big as any other microwave and taking up a lot of space on our bench. So this thing was about $1,200 when it was new. And I listed it for $400. And it took months. Like, you know, there was like often no inquiries. And, you know, then someone will come and offer me $50. And I wasn't in a hurry to sell it. And then, you know, just suddenly somebody said that they wanted to pay the $400 and that they would um, pay for it to be shipped to Tasmania. And boom, I sold it and we got that money back. So, you know, it it can take time, especially when it's something specialised like that. But, uh, you know, I think if you... If you take that time and you kind of put a good picture on and a good description and you make sure you update the ads and keep them current, you know, obviously with smaller things, you might kind of run an auction on eBay so it's just over in a week and whatever you get, you get. Then, you know, I think it's worthwhile. Yeah, I think I get put off sometimes because I have in the past sort of tried to sell things and it has felt like it's all too much trouble. But I do know my sister and her husband are amazing at eBay, buying and selling things. And I think sometimes it's worth outsourcing. You know, if you've got someone in your network who is really good, and there are services, I know this, where they'll do the clothes for you because listing individual items and then posting individual items, if you're trying to sell 15 things that don't fit you anymore, you're going to spend quite a lot of time doing that. And if you're not going to get a huge return, you might wonder why. So I think it is actually worth getting tips from or even actually looking up for a service where they will do that for you. Um, Because I think we've all got things in our house or in our wardrobes. I was talking to someone the other day, and I think this is a scenario that will be familiar to lots of mums, but 
when you fall pregnant, your body changes and you have a whole lot of new clothes that you wear while you're pregnant. And then post that, maybe while you're trying to breastfeed and things, you've got another whole wardrobe. Your body goes through all sorts of changes and you might have three or four different sizes in your wardrobe, some of which you just will never wear again. And, and you know, it's worth looking into, can I sell them? Is there a resale value? Um, particularly maternity clothes, because I didn't buy that many, but often things are quite expensive. So I think selling things like maternity jeans that are still in good condition is absolutely worth doing um, because someone out there will buy them. My big tip is to use the apps uh, because then you can take the photo on your phone Mm. and upload it directly into the app without having to kind of download it to the computer and then up onto the website and so on. So, you know, Gumtree, eBay, all of those places, you know, have apps and it, it makes it quite easy to make the listings. You're listening to the podcast, Your Family, Your Money. In this episode, we're talking about returning to work and boosting your family income through other means as well. And still to come, we'll be talking about the sharing economy and reskilling and upskilling for different careers. But before then, we actually have a question from a listener, Jun from Croydon in Melbourne. What are the factors my partner and I should consider for income protection insurance? We are servicing a pretty big mortgage and don't want to start paying insurance only to stop if interest rates increase more than 1% or so. When are interest rates supposed to rise and by how much? Well, there's a few questions in there, isn't there? There's the, there's the question about uh, income protection insurance and there's the question about interest rates. I think you recently um, looked into or got income protection insurance, didn't you, Georgie? Yes, we have. Um, look, the thing I would say is that when you are in a position of servicing a big mortgage and and where an interest rate rise of one percentage point or more is going to create stress, then my thinking would be that income protection insurance is actually probably very necessary um, because if you don't have some form of protection, should one of you lose your job for whatever reason or something happen to either of you, then you would be in a potentially difficult spot. You know, income protection insurance is not necessarily cheap, but I think you have to look at your whole position and and work out in the whole picture what risks you are willing to take on and what risks you aren't willing to take on. Um, If you're in a position where if you lost your job and you could happily downsize, sell your house, make some changes, then it's probably not worthwhile um, considering. But if you are locked into where you are for whatever reason and you're going to be needing to stay where you are, then I would absolutely say it's worth looking into income protection insurance and how that might work for you. So one good thing about income protection insurance is it's tax deductible, unlike most insurance actually. And the biggest thing to think about is whether you're going to do level premiums where it stays the same you know, you pay the same amount plus, you know, maybe a kind of uh, rise based on inflation each year, or whether you're going to do stepped premiums where you pay a cheaper rate now, but as you get older and older, the, the rate goes up. And you also can think about how much you want to insure. You don't necessarily need to insure your whole income if what you need to make sure you can service your mortgage is 75% of your income then you can insure 75% of your income and and then the premiums come down. 
I think it's really worth talking to a specialist, a financial planner who um, has a lot of kind of specialist knowledge in insurance, who can talk through those complexities um, and also recommend which insurance providers are you know, have the best reputation for actually paying out when you need to. Mm, Absolutely. And what would you say about the interest rates? Well, there's a lot of uh, differences in opinion with economists um, about interest rates. Uh, You know, no no one can agree on when they're going to rise. I think a rise of one percentage point would be a lot. That's... um, That's four rises of 25 basis points. So, you know, that, I mean, it could happen over four months. It could happen, I guess it could happen in one meeting that they decide to make a huge jump. But I think that's unlikely. I think that when you see interest rates start to rise, it will happen much more slowly and you can consider your position as that happens. I would be trying to service your mortgage at a higher level now so that you can create a buffer um, and... And, you know, you have that money on redraw or in your offset account. Some people say it's a great idea to be trying to pay kind of three percentage points more than you are now. And, um, you know, that way, if if interest rates go up substantially, you know you've got the money there. But in the meantime, you're kind of chipping away at that balance really well. Uh, the other thing I would say is that if you're concerned that you might have to drop income protection insurance at some point, uh, then you might want to do the stepped premiums because the only reason to do level premiums is if you're going to commit to it and then you get the benefit of it over time. If it's something that you're going to switch on and off as you can afford it or at different times in your life, then you stick with stepped. Caitlin, let's talk about the sharing economy. Where are the opportunities, do you think, um, for a household to make some extra money? Are there opportunities to do that? Absolutely. Well, we talked uh, in the last episode about Car Next Door and all these people who are making money from their second car by letting strangers borrow it. And, uh, you know, they pay about I don't know, $5 an hour to drive the car around and, you know, petrol and everything's included in that. I, I don't know. Would you would you would you do that? Would you let a stra- would you let strangers come and borrow your car? I would definitely look into it because there are periods of time where it's not being used. And I mean I guess they, they are the sort of opportunities that we should look into. I'm always interested on the occasions where I do get an Uber, I, I always ask the drivers, you know, how long they've been doing it and why they're doing it. And and so often it is people supplementing their income while they're either studying or while they're starting up a business. Or I've had quite a few mums recently who are doing it during school hours when their kids are at school. And I mean, obviously there are barriers to entry, but if you do have a car and you do have a license and you have the ability and time to commit to it, then it actually is quite a clever way, I think, to to make a little bit of money. Yeah, well, I've heard varying reports of how much money people make. You know, sometimes it's really worth it and sometimes it's it's not. But it certainly does have that advantage of being ultimately flexible. Uh, you know, you can just by pressing a button on your smartphone say, I'm available or I'm not available. You know, it, it's not just, oh, because it's in school hours, it's because now I've decided to go to the cafe for half an hour. Yeah. Well, actually, a woman driver who I had recently said, you know, that she doesn't think it would be easy to make a living out of driving full time. But she said for her and her husband, they have got a few kids and they run a business. She said 
it's just an easy way to supplement her income. And so yesterday she had to drive her husband somewhere and then she thought, well, on the way back, I'll just turn it on and if I get any rides, then I'm, I'm heading back in that direction anyway. And you think, oh, well, that's quite sensible, isn't it, to just – I don't think it would necessarily cover your whole cost of living. But if you've got the car and you've got the time, then it, then it makes sense. And there are also sites like Airtasker. Uh, a friend of mine recently used them to find someone who would put together her IKEA furniture for her. She'd moved moved cities and bought a whole lot of new furniture and she was kind of sitting in the empty flat with all this flat pack around her, feeling overwhelmed. Yes, um, which is a, univer- <laughs> a, a near universal experience with flat pack furniture. And she had a great experience. This guy came over and, you know, for a price they were both happy with, you know, put together all the furniture for her. And she, uh, I think she threw in a, a six pack of beer as a, as a thank you as well as the official price. We have had some success with Airtasker. My husband and I are both absolutely terrible when it comes to technology and making things work the way they're meant to work. And we have, you know, I think saved our marriage and our careers at various points for a very reasonable price. <laughs> by getting people to come over and make the printer work that neither of us could get working for about three weeks. And, I mean, I don't know what's wrong with us, but we find it quite difficult to make our computers do the things we just want them to do. And it is a really good way of getting someone that can come to your house, you can see how they've been reviewed, you can set up a price that seems suitable to you. You know, it's so different to when you might, you know, when, when you think about the way we service our cars, which is you, you book it in, you drop it off, and then they call you and say it's going to cost you X amount of money, which is usually a lot more than you were hoping for. Um, whereas with this, you, you arrange the price before they get there and you say, okay, if you can come and make this work, we'll give you X amount of money. So I think there's definitely, I, I just, I don't have any skills I could offer to rent out. I obviously couldn't go and help anyone fix their computer or their printer. No, but you might be able to help them decide um, where to hang their pictures and, and, you know, measure out the hooks on the wall. Or That's true. Uh, I could do some copywriting if someone some needed that. Gardening, I'm not very good at. Cooking, I am actually quite a good cook. There you go. I could, I could. <laughs> Uh, there's, I mean, there's also Airbnb, of course, you know, I know, I know people who've, uh, funded, uh, or subsidized their trip to Europe by renting out their house in, I think it was in Melbourne to two different families. They arranged someone to come in the middle and clean. Yes. And, uh, you know, they made a few thousand dollars. Uh, I think it's so clever. My sister and her husband, they live on the Gold Coast and they Airbnb their place often because they've also got family there. They can go and stay with them. But it's just such a sensible way to fund their own holidays um, and just to sort of create a buffer in the household budget. The amount of cleaning and decluttering that I personally would have to do in order to make my own home Airbnb ready, I'm perhaps going to leave that one for other people. <laughs> hey, yes. but I want to pick up on a um, the, the mechanic thing that you just mm. mentioned. Yes. Uh, I think that's a an, um, much underappreciated area of uh, saving is to find a trusted independent mechanic who's not part of the big companies because mm. they have these incentive programs that are all based on upselling. You know, yes. they're, they're, they're paid and, and given pr- promotions and bonuses to find more problems with your car and convince you that they have to be fixed right now. Yes. We have a mobile mechanic that comes to us and when he does this, uh, we have an old car, so we have to get the safety checks done. They cost $40 and he never finds anything else. Or if he does, he says, well, you know, you might want to get this looked at at some point. 
you know, but you choose when within the next six months. Yeah. You know, so we can kind of, we're in control of that. So Yes. Well, I also should say that with our main car, so we've got an older car and a, and a it's, it's still, it's still old, but it's newer than the old car. Uh, and we have got a capped servicing program with that, which we find hugely valuable because we know each time that it gets serviced what's, what it's going to cost. In previous years when we had older cars and we, we both had that horror experience of dropping it off and then, you know, getting the phone call saying, oh, we've done this to it and we've done that to it and that'll be $1,500. And, and you know, you're, you think that it's going to be a $250 routine service. And I think that situation is really difficult because you're in a relative position where you don't have power. Uh, yeah, and they've got your car hostage. They do. And also you don't have the requisite skills the to be able to say or the knowledge, actually that wasn't necessary because you don't know whether it was necessary or not. Mm. We should talk about reskilling and upskilling. Um, you know, we talked about that transition back to work. And, you know, I think sometimes when you're kind of home with a baby or children, especially if you take kind of more than a year or so out, you, you know, you might have multiple children, you know, you might wait till they go to preschool or school. And, you know, you or your knowledge can become less current. Your experience can become less relevant. I think that there is a lot of things that you can do to get back on track um, career-wise. And the nice thing is that it might delay the return to work, but in a flexible way. You know, studying's usually a little bit fewer hours and more flexibility than working. So that can be kind of a nice stepping stone back to the workplace as well. Yeah, absolutely. But And I also think that when you do spend time at home looking after small children, you actually do learn and acquire a whole host of, of new skills. Um, and I think in particular, you become more efficient than you ever have. Because if you know that you've only got 40 minutes when that child is going to have a nap, suddenly you manage to do 500 things in that time because you know it's your, that, that window. And I think that you know, it is one of the tricky things about spending some time out of the workforce is that sometimes your confidence can take a real hit because you might have left an office where you had a position and you knew exactly what your sort of requirements were and how to meet them. And then suddenly you're at home looking after a tiny baby. You might not necessarily know how to do that very well. It's something most of us learn as we're doing it. And I think, you know, that sort of disconnect, you can feel a little bit, you forget some of your professional confidence. And I think that a lot of that can be overcome with some really good support. So whether if you do work for an employer, and there are some employers out there who have got fantastic return to work programs who actually stay in touch with their employees while they're on maternity leave and things like that. And I think reaching out, there are a lot of groups on Facebook now for sort of women who have babies and are starting businesses, you know, in really niche areas or just in general, women going back to work. And I think that you shouldn't underestimate the support and confidence that you can get from sort of plugging yourself into a couple of networks um, where you can sort of remind yourself that actually, yeah, you have spent some time out of the office, but you also have developed some new skills because of that and that you're also still very capable of contributing to a workplace. Absolutely. So it's about confidence and not underselling your abilities to both yourself and to other people. That's it for this episode. Join us next time for more of Your Family, Your Money, where we'll look into health insurance. If you have any questions or topic suggestions, feel free to drop us a line. Podcast at kindling.com.au.
Your Family, Your Money is brought to you by Westpac Bump Savings Account as part of Westpac's 200th year celebration. If your baby was born in 2017, Westpac will deposit $200 into a Westpac Bump Savings Account, which they can withdraw when they turn 16. You can open the account online today. Visit westpac.com.au forward slash dearbump. Account must be opened and your ID verified by 31 May 2018. The $200 is limited to one per child and will be forfeited if the account is closed before their 16th birthday. Other T's and C's and eligibility criteria apply. Read the T's and C's available at the Westpac website before deciding if the product is right for you.